Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message is merciful and kind. Scripture reveals to us that he is gracious. But of all the phrases that describe and denote and speak of the character of God, it is his holiness that rises to the surface. It's the only characteristic of God that has that threefold refrain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is what I believe would be his chief characteristic his holiness. And so you ask, what does holiness consist of? And here they are. It is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, self-control, etc. That is reflected here. So when the, Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is to be alive and at work within us and manifest in us, what he's really telling us is that God is to be present in our lives. God is to be evidenced in our life and in our character. When we speak about the fruit of the Spirit, it is indeed that which characterizes the Spirit, but it also that which is that comes from the Spirit of God. He's the one that generates this in our own hearts and in our own lives and in our own character. Now, we looked at love last week. And when we looked at this, we remembered that these characteristics of God or attributes of God are communicable attributes. We said that there are two kinds of attributes that the theologians refer to. There are those that are incommunicable. Those are ones that God does not share with us, that he does not commune to us. That are characteristics, for example, like he is infinite. He doesn't share his infiniteness with you or I. He is omniscient. He doesn't share his all knowledge with us. He's omnipotent. He's the only one who has all power. He doesn't share that with us. He's the one who is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He does not share that with us. These are characteristics that are unique to God and make him God and have him distinct from all other beings. But his communicable attributes are attributes that he does share with us. We said the word communicable is like when we refer to a communicable disease. It's one that can be shared. It's one that can be spread. Now, the fruit of the Spirit are not diseases. They are the blessings of the very character of God. And they are communicable or they are ones that he shares with us. So God is love, the scripture says, but he shares that love with us that we might be loving in turn to one another. This morning, we're going to look at the second attribute of God or that which he communes, communicates to us, shares with us, and that is joy. 
Now, when I first thought about this, it's, it's interesting to me because it's not hard for us to think about God as being love. And scripture says that, First John, God is love. It's not hard to think about God as gentle. And so he speaks here about gentleness. It's not hard to think about God as being kind. And so he'll speak to us here about kindness. It's not hard for us to think about God as long-suffering because it sort of parallels his mercy and his grace. And we know that God is compassionate toward us. But when we think of God as joy, I think somehow that sort of escapes us. Mainly because I think that the term joy to us seems to communicate in emotionalism, and we generally don't think of God as an emotional being. We think of Messiah as being emotional, but here's an interesting thing. I don't know any passage, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I don't know any passage where it speaks about Yeshua laughing. I don't know any passage that says that. Now, no doubt he did laugh, because he was at a lot of parties. And we also know that he must have laughed Because he was accused of being a wine-bibber and a drunkard. So he must have had a lot of fun at these parties. And he wasn't just one that sat down and lectured people and was sort of austere and didn't enjoy life or the things in life. A lot of believers are like that. You know, certain things that bring enjoyment. You know, I would never go. And there were times, you know, you couldn't go to the movies if you were a believer. You okay, Wendy? Easy. Judy? Easy. So sometimes, you know, there was a time, and I remember the uh, church where I became a believer, they said, no going to movies. Now, to be sure, there are some things in movies we ought not to expose ourselves to, but the point is that Yeshua mingled in the real world, in places where sometimes he would show up, where, of course, the religious people of his day said, how could he ever be among the prostitutes and the tax collectors? How is it possible that he can actually sit down with these kinds of people, these sinners? I remember years and years ago in the church that I became a believer, I got into their softball team. Our softball team was called Shiloh. I still have my jersey and I can still fit into it. (laughs) Because I was this big back then and I never grew. You know, I just stayed the same. But I was number two. And I was an infield, usually played second or shortstop, you know. And we were not in a church league. We were in a bar league. So we used to play O'Clancy's, and we used to play all these different, all these different teams. And these guys would show up, you know, and they'd have all the stuff, all the beers, everything's out there. And they were rough-looking guys. They were huge guys, and we'd all come out there with our bats, you know. And, but we had some very, very, very good players, And we had some pretty big guys, too. But we didn't come out on the field, you know, kind of gruff and tough. We just came out, and then we'd all get together, and we'd pray, you know. And these guys would look at us like, what? You know, what is this? And over time, they saw just how good a team we had. And many times, we were a lot better than some of these bar teams. And I remember on one occasion, though I'm sure it happened on other occasions, that these group of guys were so impressed with us, they say, hey, why don't you come on back to, I don't know, old Clancy's or something, you know? So we all went back to their bar. And we got, we went in. And we were sitting around, you know, the guy said, what do you have? Oh, I have a Diet Coke, you know? <laughs> and it was things like, because we weren't drinking. But we were there in that bar, and we would share our faith with these guys. And I'm sure some people thought, 
you know, if they knew, we said Shiloh, if they knew what that meant. But if they knew that this was a church team, what were these guys doing going into a bar? It would look kind of funny. But over time, this was our recruiting mechanism. Over time, God led some of these people to faith. And these big, tough, rough, you know, Irish and other guys that were playing against us were now in our church. And they were now on our team, you know. And that was sort of our way to recruit, you know. But it was also our way to share our faith, to mingle with people who we might not otherwise connect with. Yeshua was like that. He enjoyed life. He enjoyed getting involved in people's lives. And yet was able to be distinct in many ways, but yet united to them. So I don't know any passage where it speaks about him laughing, but no doubt he must have been laughing. And he certainly had joy. And so the second fruit of the Spirit is joy. And we don't think about God as being joyful. We don't think about God as being joyous. We don't think about God rejoicing in heaven. But you know what? The scripture says he does rejoice in heaven. He does celebrate all of us. He celebrates us in the very presence of the angels. But we don't have an easy time thinking about that. And I think it's because God seems so remote. And we talk about him in very abstract terms. He's infinite, whatever that means, not being finite. You know, he's infinite. But we don't think of him in personal terms, perhaps enough. And sometimes we think of him in personal terms, maybe too much. And we reduce him from what he really is. But one thing we need to remember is that God is love and God is joy. Let me show you something. Look at the prophet Zephaniah. You say, Zephaniah? I didn't even know there was such a book in the Bible. Zephaniah, it's right before Zechariah. So very easy to remember. Two Zs come right in a row. Don't fall asleep on me. Two Z. Okay, sorry. But here we go. In in Zephaniah, um, the prophet writes, verse 14 of chapter 3. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. This, of course, is talking about the millennial kingdom. The Messiah has come. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, the Lord, the King of Israel is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. Isn't that a great thing? Don't fear. Don't just be so downcast. Let your hands hang up. Get them up and be rejoicing in the Lord. And look what he says here. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. Look at this. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. Look at this. He will rejoice over you with singing, singing. God will sing over us. Is that not craziness? Is that like a wild passage or what? I mean, that's just an awesome kind of thing. The Lord will celebrate us. And I love this. He'll take great delight over you. Do you know what it means to take great delight? The word delight means... You know, it's right there in the word. We just sometimes miss these things. To be delighted means to be lightened. You know, sort of like, you know, one of my favorite albums uh, of all time. And by the way, I just came back from Arizona, right? I put this album on. I can be anywhere in like 20 minutes. You know, I just put it on. I'll see you. You know, I'll be right there. And of course, Led Zeppelin's first album. And, And on the car, I just put that, boom, I'm home. And on the cover, of course, is that great disaster when the Zeppelin 
crashed in New Jersey and Hoboken, I think it was, right? But it made me think, when the Zeppelin worked well, what did it do? It was lighter than air, and it floats above. To be delighted means to be lifted up above all the trials and tragedies and circumstances of your life. To be delighted means to find joy over and above one's circumstances. It means to be freed up. And isn't that what happens? You know, when we go through trials and stuff, we feel so crushed and like a weight is pulling us down. The Lord says, rejoice in me, be delighted so that I'll just lift you up over all of those ensnarements and all of those challenges and all of those kinds of things that would bring us down. He wants to lift us up. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Now, here's another neat thing. God rejoicing. Take a look at this. And again, you know, you're familiar with this, but in Luke chapter 15, you have that great series of three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. But what's so neat about each one He says, you know, suppose, chapter 15, looking at verse 3 of Luke, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep? And then he says, when he founds the sheep, he rejoices. Look at verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 that... um, the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. He says this again, the lost coin in verse 9. And when he finds it, he rejoices. And then in verse 10, the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's like the angels and God all rejoice because an individual has repented of their sin. God rejoices. So when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, God is joy. So what does that mean? That means to say that if God dwells in your heart by his spirit, there has to be joy. One of the authentic characteristics of a believer is joy. Now, be careful. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. See, happiness is something that is the result of circumstances that we kind of like. Joy looks beyond the circumstances to something much more deeper and abiding. In fact, the Hebrew word, uh, Greek word, kara, which is the word for joy, means that which is deep and abiding. And that's why scripture can talk about having joy in the midst of our sorrows. The most joyous person in all the world was Yeshua, yet he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that Messiah, verse 2, Messiah went to the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Is it really possible to enter the foray of trials and tribulations joyously? It was for Messiah. And if the fruit of the Spirit is evident in our lives, it is true for us too. We can actually enter into the spheres of trials and tribulations with joy. By the way, that is the way the martyrs of our God have faced their trials. How is it possible that these individuals could be uh, put in all kinds of, of uh, tar and oil and lit up in the Colosseums of Rome, knowing they were going to their deaths and would not recant their faith? 
How is it possible these individuals could go into these places and be fed to lions? They knew what was going to happen to them, but they would not renounce their faith. Wouldn't it just be easy to say, look, I'm going to say the words, but I don't mean it in my heart. God knows my heart. So I can avoid all of that. But these guys wouldn't do that. Why? Because they could face their trials and tribulations with a sense of joy. Not happiness, be careful, but with joy. What is it about joy that makes the difference? Now, before I share my thoughts with you on that, let me just back up one moment. This is a fruit of the Spirit. This isn't something we are conjured up. It is something that is granted to us, and everyone who has the Spirit already has the joy. If the Spirit of God dwells in you and you're a believer, then he does dwell in you, according to Romans 8. Well, then his fruit is there. Because wherever the Spirit is, he is there. And wherever he is there, all the characteristics of him is there as well. And so if the Spirit of God dwells within us, then his fruit is there. question is, we can lag behind. We need to allow the fruit of the Spirit to manifest itself. And you know where joy shows up? It's always in the context of trials and tribulations. It's always in the context of trials and tribulations. Because joy is an enduring factor and quality that is to become evident in our lives. Yeshua makes this very clear. Turn with me. I want you to see this in John chapter 15. And by the way, John chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 is this long discourse that Messiah gives. He gives it on Passover. It's oftentimes referred to as the upper room discourse, but when you get to chapter 16 or so, he's no longer, they're no longer in the upper room. They're now walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's really not an upper room discourse. It's really the Passover discourse, some of which is shared during Passover around the Seder table, some of which is shared in route to the Garden of Gethsemane that was at the base of the Mount of Olives. And in chapter 15, Messiah tells us how we can bear the fruit of the Spirit. And the way that the fruit of the Spirit becomes evident is when we abide in him. That's what he says. I am the true vine, my father is, is, and my father is the gardener. Chapter 15, verse 1. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me or abide in me, and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. This is much like what Paul says. We are to keep in step with the Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit. We are to follow the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit cannot become evident unless the Messiah of Israel makes it evident through us. And the only way this Messiah can make it evident through us is when we abide in him, when we follow him, when we are in obedience to him. And so he says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. He says in verse 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He goes on to say toward the end of this section, he says around verse 15, uh, or I should say verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So Messiah says that we bear fruit by abiding in him. 
He says, not only will we bear fruit, we will bear much fruit. Not only does he say we will bear much fruit, but we will bear much fruit that will last forever. That's what Messiah wants us to manifest. And then he tells us, how does this become manifest? Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will also obey yours. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not follow the one who sent me. So how does the fruit come to bear? How does the fruit come to fruition? By following Messiah, where will he lead us? He will lead us into places where we will be hated. How does he tell us to endure those places of hatred? Remember my word. Cling to my word. Hold on to my word. Let the word of Messiah, Paul says in Colossians, dwell in you richly. And in that very same context, he says, and then allow the peace of Messiah to reign in your hearts. It's all about not the circumstances. It's about one's connection to God. Joy is a sense of certainty, a sense that God in his sovereignty who is leading us is over us. And therefore, even in our trials and tribulations and even in the conflicts that we face, there can be that sense that God is really in control and we could have joy. That's what Yeshua experienced. He went to the cross with the joy that was set before him because he knew God was in control and God had a purpose and significance in what was taking place. But now if you look at chapter 17, talking about joy, this is Messiah's prayer. He says, in fact, I think it's about three times he makes reference to joy. I don't know if I'm going to find them all here. But he says in verse 13, I'm coming to you now. I say these things while I am still in the world. He's praying to the Father so that my joy, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. There it is again. Isn't that interesting? Joy is always connected through the pressure and trials and tribulations that come in the world. That come from those who are in opposition to what God is doing in our lives or through us. And so he says, I've come into the world. I pray that the full measure of my joy might be within them. Notice it's Messiah's joy. He's talking about the fruit of the spirit. The spirit is Messiah's spirit. He's talking about the joy of God being full in our hearts. And then he says in that very same context that... um, The world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And he'll speak about joy in his prayer, that we would experience him and the joy that comes through him. But take a look at this passage. And, you know, by the way, there are three major themes in the Passover discourse. One is the theme of the Holy Spirit. It's here that he promises the Spirit's coming. The other theme that, that uh, revolves here is the theme of love. Love one another. And over and over he'll speak about loving. And then the other is joy. That's the other major theme that's here. But look at this in chapter 16. 
He said in verse 16, in a little while, he's saying that to his disciples, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. He says, in a little while, you will not see me. Then in a little while, you will see me. Now, that sounds confusing even to me. But you can imagine what it sounded like to the, to the disciples. We know about the resurrection. We can intimidate, uh, anticipate what he's talking about. But they, even though they were told of that, they didn't know what it was. They didn't believe it even. They questioned it. So he's saying, a little while you'll see me. A little while you will not see me. And they're saying like, did you hear what he just said? Because, you know, whatever I heard him say, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. So look at verse 17. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by this? You know, And so he says, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me? And because I'm going to the Father. Where's he going? Where's his Father? They kept asking, what does it mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. I mean, this is so great, isn't it? You get a real glimpse into these guys. They're really honest about, you know, they didn't go away and say, well, I got that. I can't wait for the test, you know. They're saying, holy cow, what is this all about? And here's the neat thing. Yeshua saw that they wanted to ask him about this. He doesn't just, you know, well, if they don't ask me, I'm not saying anything. You know? But he saw that they wanted to ask him. And so he reaches out to them and he says, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you'll be with me no more? And then after a little while, I will, you know, you will see me. He says, I tell you the truth. You will weep. And mourn. Here it is again. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because of her, her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her, here it is, joy that a child is born into the world. So with you now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Four times. He makes reference to joy in answer to the question, you'll see me, then you won't see me. You know? And look what he says. First of all, the joy that he will give is his joy. It's my joy I'm imparting to you. And the second thing is, joy comes in the midst of sorrows. You know, it says like in the Psalm, what is it, Psalm 30, weeping will endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Here he says, hey, you'll have some weeping, you'll have some grieving, joy will come. And he says, it's like a woman in travail. It gives birth to a child. I don't know anything about that. But I have had a kidney stone, and I'm told that's very close. <laughs> you know. But notice what he says. He doesn't say the joy will take away the grief. He says what happens is you forget the grief. You forget the pain. The pain is there, but the joy is so much greater it's like it didn't occur, but it did, you know, and it wasn't fun. But the Lord takes our sorrows, he turns them to joy. It's always in the context of sorrow and suffering that joy manifests itself. It's a joy that is given to us by his grace. 
It's a joy that is the manifestation of the very fruit of God's spirit. Now, he said, love, the, the, the opposite of love is not hatred. And we saw that last week, right? Because it says, perfect love casts out all fear. So the opposite of love is really fear because love, the essence of love is trust. And where there's trust, you're not afraid. And so if we really love God, we trust him. And therefore, we're not afraid. He's sovereign. He's in control. We go through all kinds of things. But you know what? My eyes are focused on him who's the sovereign Lord of the universe. Nothing comes into my world that he does not permit. And nothing that I experience can ever be as excruciating as what his, his son experienced for me. In fact, I heard one preacher say this. I never thought of it this way before. But when, it, when I did, it sort of gave a new dimension to things. You know, we talk about Messiah's death. And that he took upon himself the sin of every human being in all of time and space, in the past, the present, and with regard to the future, however long that will be. Not only did he take upon the sin of every individual, but he took upon himself sin that impacted the universe. Because even the world itself, the creation itself, groans for redemption, according to Romans chapter 8. So the world, the universe has been affected by sin and his death actually carries the burden that affects the universe because one day there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. He redeems all of God's creation. All of that Messiah took upon himself when he suffered on the cross. But here was the phrase, I'd never thought about this before. I mean, I thought about this idea, but I never thought of this term to denote it. And that is, Messiah was on the cross for a period of six hours, right? And it was at, from nine to three. And at 12 o'clock is when everything turns dark. Because at that moment, he had said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that the Lord, the God, the Father has separated himself from the Son, the Shekinah glory departs and the world is shrouded in darkness. And for the next three hours, he remains on the cross. He carries the burden of sin. Once he's placed, his body's placed into the tomb and he says, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Of course, he then, we're told, um, appears in the underworld and announces to the righteous dead that salvation has now been provided and they are escorted into the very presence of God. Now, we can't talk too much about that, but this is the phrase. In that time span on the cross when he was carrying our sin, all of the suffering that had to be endured in order to provide redemption, this is the phrase, term, was compressed into that time span. Now, all of a sudden, for me, that seemed to put a whole different light on things for me. Because the moment I heard this word that it was compressed, you know, I kind of th- thought, thought of it more linearly. But no, 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 it was compressed. All of the suffering, all of the sin, everything that had occurred contrary to the will of God from the fall of the evil one to the very end of time, whatever all that means, I'm not sure I really got a handle, was compressed into a small period of time. What was that anguish like? I mean, you know what, that when there's some kind of pain that's just compressed 
into a given spot on our body. If it's spread out, maybe I can endure it, but it's just right localized in this one spot and it just paralyzes me. What was it like that all of that was just compressed into that small period of time? And yet it says that he went to that for the joy that was set before him. So the opposite of, of um, joy, I guess we would think sorrow, and I so, suppose to some degree that's true. But more importantly, the thing that makes joy different than happiness is the element of hope. Because that's what Messiah saw. It says that he went to the cross with joy. Why? Because he knew what he would endure would provide redemption and salvation to the ends of the earth. The reason why he tells us that the world will hate us, that the enemy will come against us when we seek to live righteously and do the right thing, is because there is hope that on the other side, the sovereign Lord of the universe will vindicate, And will bring about his most perfect plan and purpose for us. That's why the focus must be on the sovereignty of God. Abide in me. And you will bear fruit, much fruit, fruit that will last. Joy will be the result because joy is linked to hope. So in closing, let me just read this portion from Viktor Frankl's book, Man in Search for Meaning, I think is what the title is. And Viktor Frankl was, I think he was a psychiatrist. Maybe he was a medical doctor, but I think he was a psychiatrist. Who had actually endured not one or two or three, but four different concentration camps during the Nazi era in Europe. And his last was in Auschwitz. He survived. And he wrote about the significance of hope. And I think that's what is the core of joy. So let me just read this portion for you. I once had a dramatic demonstration of the close link between the loss of faith in the future, that's hope, faith in the future, and this dangerous giving up. My senior block warden, a fairly well-known composer, confided in me one day, I would like to tell you something, doctor. I had a strange dream. A voice told me that I, if, that I could wish for something, that I, could, that I should only say what I wanted to know and all my questions would be answered. What do you think I asked? That I would like to know when the war would be over for me. You know what I mean, doctor? For me. I wanted to know when we, when our camp would be liberated and our sufferings come to an end. And when did you have this dream, I asked. In February 1945, he answered. It was then the beginning of March. What did your dream voice answer? Furtively, he whispered to me, March 30th. When he told me about his dream, he was still full of hope and convinced that the voice of his dream would be right. But as the promised day drew nearer, the war news which reached our camp made it appear very unlikely that we would be free on the promised date. 
On March 29th, this individual suddenly became ill, ran a high temperature. On March 30th, the day his prophecy had told him that the war and suffering would be over for him, he became delirious and lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead. To all outward appearances, he had died of typhus. Those who know how close the connection is between the state of mind of a man, his courage and hope, or lack of them, and the state of immunity of his body will understand that the sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect. The ultimate cause of my friend's death was that the expected liberation did not come, and he was, he was severely disappointed. This suddenly lowered his body's resistance against the latent typhus infection. His faith in the future, his hope, and his will to live had become paralyzed, and his body fell victim to illness, and thus the voice of his dream was right after all. The observations of this one case and the conclusion drawn from them are in accordance with something that was drawn to my attention by the chief doctor of our concentration camp. The death rate in the week between Christmas 1945 and New Year's, Christmas 1944 and New Year's 1945 increased in camp beyond all previous experience. In his opinion, the explanation for this increase did not lie in the harder working conditions or the deterioration of our food supplies or a change of weather or new epidemics. It was simply that the majority of the prisoners had lived in the naive hope that they would be home again by Christmas. As the time drew near and there was no encouraging news, the prisoners lost courage and disappointment overcame them. This had a dangerous influence on their powers of resistance, and a great number of them had died. The thing that makes joy possible in the midst of suffering is the knowledge that God is in control, that if we abide in him, the fruit of that joy will be evidenced in our lives. And the essence of that joy is in hope of what God is doing in our lives. That is why our God is referred to as the hope of Israel. That is why the promise is that he will rejoice over us and find delight in us because God is bringing us into his place that he would have for us, not only in this world, but in the world to come. And by resting in him, in our deepest struggles, knowledge of his word, we will experience the hope and the joy that he has. Again, it's a communicable attribute of God. We catch it from him as we draw close to him. Over time, as we live our life in him, and as we conform ourselves to the truths of his word, the joy of God's spirit will be experienced, and the hope of his purposes will become evident to us as well. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your kindness. We're grateful, Father, for the fruit of your spirit. We pray, Lord, that as we have prayed, that love would be evident 
We pray now that we would experience joy in you. May our circumstances not dictate to us who you are or what you are doing. May the truths of your word stand supreme. May we abide in Messiah. May we draw close to his word. May we implement it and rely upon it. And as we go through the trials and struggles that we will experience, we pray, Father, that we will rest in you, the hope of glory. And that, Father, joy will well up because of who you are and what you are accomplishing in and through us. And we pray, Father, that you might uh, guide and direct us always. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel with a large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.